help me because I'm not as good as everybody else. Like, well, maybe help yourself a little bit first instead of trying to hold everybody else back. You have a problem. Change your car. <laughs> Seriously. Welcome back to Gravel Trap F1. That's Caroline. And that's Christina. The Hungarian Grand Prix this weekend was one for the history books, with many records being broken. Hamilton's ninth pole, Red Bull's 12th win, and the first pit stop under two seconds this season. So in this week's formation lap, we're doing a deep dive on F1 pit stops, how they work, why they're so fast, and what can go wrong. In the Grand Prix segment, we'll explore the history of racing in Budapest and the many motorsport firsts that have happened in Hungary. Where they smash records and trophies. At the checkered flag, Buck returns as our news hound. He's collected some hot button headlines for us to discuss, debate, and refute. Get ready for some hot takes. Well, in the formation lab today, we're just going to be talking a little bit about pit stops and the ins and outs, because this weekend in Hungary at the Hungaro Ring, we got to see a very big mix of quality of pit stops. We had a record-breaking one that was under two seconds. Fantastic. Incredible. But then we also had, take a guess at which team did this one, a nine-second pit stop. Mm. I think everybody knows. Yeah, I think everybody knows. It was Ferrari. Yeah, (laughs) that's pretty tough. (laughs) Real, real tough trivia question right there. Uh, And then the the really short pit stop, I think, was McLaren. It might have been Red Bull, though. It was one of those Mm. two that had the really, really short pit stop this time, under two seconds. And it's only the second time that. Yeah, I do think it was Red Bull. Sorry. Okay. Because I was online earlier today and I was looking at the you know record breaking timings for pit stops, whatever, and only two teams have done pit stops under two seconds with this new size of tires. And it was Red Bull and McLaren. So I think the McLaren one was last year, and then Red Bulls was this weekend. Also, they need to start calling them Incredible. 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 (laughs) How has that not become a thing yet? I truly don't know. Incredible racing. Yes. Come on, Red Bull, hire me. I love it. (laughs) Anyways, pit stops. Pit stops they are watching them in formula one it is like watching a dance because there are so many people that move all in sync they all just go to their car at the same time and it's a very blink and you miss it thing when it's done properly and one of the reasons why it's so quick is that everybody pretty much just has one job there's about 20 people working on a car at a given pit stop 12 of those people alone are on the tires. Wow. You have one person taking the tire off, one person putting the tire back on, and then one person operating the pneumatic wheel gun. Try saying mm. that quickly. Do we know what happened with the wheel gun at Ferrari that caused the nine-second pit stop? So there's a couple things that can go wrong when they're switching out the tires. One of the things can be that the nut is stripped and so it doesn't slide off really quickly. And sometimes the pneumatic guns, see, I messed it up right there already. <laughs> sometimes the pneumatic guns fail, which is why they have the spares. Mm-hmm. So I do believe that the Ferrari one, this was the back left tire, I think, that yep. was stuck. And so they had to switch which gun they were using. 
which was one of the delays because you have to put the gun down, you have to pick it up, and then you have to punch it in, punch out again. So Mm -hmm. that's one of the things that can go very wrong. Aside the people working on the tires, you also have the jacks at the front and at the back of the car, and they slide underneath either the front wing or the rear uh, light. There's that little Mm -hmm. rectangular bracket that they can fit their jack under. They lift up the car and they place it back down delicately. There are two jacks at the front and the back. Just in case something goes wrong, they can quickly slide somebody else in. And then here's the important thing as well, is that they have side jacks. And the only time you'll see those happening is when there's damage to the front wing. And of course, you can't put the jack under the front wing when you're switching out the front wing. Yeah. So those are kind of the big roles. Aside that, you also have extra people on hand if they need to switch out that front wing. So that's two extra people. And sometimes that person also has the role of changing those like minute little adjustments on the front wing. You'll sometimes see them going in with what looks like a really tiny Allen wrench and making Mm -hmm. those couple little turns. So they're just adjusting the trim on the on the wing. And then you also have the lollipop man. Ooh, I don't even know what they do, but I want it. <laughs> they're modern days. We call them the um, controller. Okay. The pit stop controller. But they used to be called the lollipop man because they used to hold the big yeah, sign the thing at the front of the car. With their numbers exactly. on Exactly. Yeah. They used to hold the lollipop. They don't do that necessarily anymore. And that person also very frequently on a lot of teams will have a slightly different colored fireproof or helmet to help distinguish Mm. that they have that super special role. Oh my goodness. All I can hear is the lollipop, 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 Yes. Yeah. It gets me going. It does. It really does. I feel like that'd be a good little like background music for a pit stop. I love it. Okay. And important to note that this is an extra job that these people are doing. It's not their full-time position to do pit stops and to practice, even though they do that. They practice every single weekend. They practice at the factory. They have dummy pits, like pit stops, pit stations that they practice at. Mm -hmm. But they still have to do all of their regular office jobs. So these are mechanics, engineers, people that are traveling with Formula One week to week anyway, they just also have to do workouts so that way they can lift these giant tires or spin the giant gun. Like it's not, you know, not a lot of added pressure. We haven't seen races be completely derailed. No double DNF. (coughs) Haas, thanks Drive to Survive for capturing that absolute like tragedy. Yikes. (sighs) Question. I saw somebody on McLaren's pit crew. It was a woman. So shout out mm-hmm. to my ladies in motorsport that came out with the pit crew and wiped down the rear wing. Is that mm-hmm. a designated role or is that an like as needed thing? I believe that that would be an as needed thing because remember, they do also have that extra person that they don't make adjustments on the front wing all the time. They don't have to change out the front wing all the time. Mm-hmm. So they do have kind of the core people that will always be participating in a pit stop. The jacks, Mm -hmm. the tires, 12 people, and the lollipop. But then they do also have those extra people for those longer pit stops and for those extra miscellaneous roles. And so the person in charge of that pit crew would basically be saying in between pit stops and while they're prepping for the next one, hey, this is something that has been communicated to us that needs to happen from the pit wall. Mm -hmm. So now this is how it's going to go. 
each team might do things a little bit differently because it really is what works for them. But typically it would be somebody who's on the pit crew, but has more of a as needed, yes, miscellaneous role, not just yeah. wiping down. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. I don't think that's her only job, but I saw, I noticed it this weekend because I feel like I haven't seen it as much in the past, especially on mm -hmm. a really fast pit stop moment. Um, so I was like, Ooh, go girl. Exactly. It's, uh, it's one of those really important roles when I think Red Bull also on their front wing had somebody wiping down and checking for debris mm. in there. So again, that's why they would have extra people is to take a quick look at those things and then go ahead. And yeah. all of this is very standard pit stops. Every once in a while, you have pit stops that you know are going to take longer because they also have to do a repair. So think mm -hmm. like they come running out with duct tape because a rear wing is kind of just barely hanging on. They can fix it if they tape it, but they still need to, you know, tape it that extra little bit. And that's what mm -hmm. makes pit stops really interesting and exciting is that so much of it, especially those ones that aren't your typical pit stop, they're thinking on the fly so much yeah. and having to just make it work. Yeah. Or like swapping a uh, wheel. Oh, the steering like the, wheel. Yes, yeah, so swapping the steering wheel. And then you have to wait for the steering wheel to connect and reboot and turn on. I mean, those those are the ones that always stress me out because I'm like, what if it doesn't turn on? <laughs> oh, the, the fact that the steering wheels are their own mini computers, it's, it's just crazy. so much. My one steering wheel, all it does is left and right. And that's all I need it to do. Yeah. I mean, I get stressed changing music in my car and they're, <clears throat> they're doing a million and one things. I'm just, okay, sure. Sure. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. I actually, when we were in Miami, I got to take a look at Lewis Hamilton's steering wheel and I asked them, I was like, do you guys have like buttons break consistently? And he said, no, that typically the buttons don't break. And if something pops off that they always have extra pieces that they can pop on and pop out. Cause like everything looks at like elevated. It's not like a remote control that you use for your TV where it's like flush with the mm -hmm. material itself of the wheel. It's all kind of raised, which makes sense because if they can't look at it, you you want to be able to feel it to to See. find the button you're looking for. Yeah. Okay. Hypothetical question. Don't expect I mean, if you don't know the answer, that's okay. <laughs> In the event that a driver is injured, you know, or is having a personal issue in the middle of the race. Are they allowed to switch drivers mid-race at a pit stop? They are not. Okay. I wasn't sure, but yeah. it was a thought that I had. Yeah, they're not. So the general thing is that you can swap out a driver as long as they have a free practice session. Oh. And as long as you initiate the switch before qualifying. So whoever qualifies is the person that has to run the race. Makes sense. Makes sense. Well, that's the end of the formation lap. We have talked about pit stops, and now we are on to our second stint. So for today's Grand Prix segment, we're just going to delve into a little bit of history in Hungary, because I don't know about you guys, but when I was in school, I don't really feel like we talked about Hungary just as a nation like hardly at all. So it was really fun for me to deep dive into some of the history, but specifically for Formula One's history there. So the first Formula One race in Hungary was on June 21st in 1936. So a hot minute ago and was held in one of Budapest's parks. For any of our listeners, if you are from Hungary, I apologize if I 
butcher the pronunciation, but I've looked up some of the pronunciations and I'm doing my best. But the name of the park was Nepligate. So at that race, Mercedes, who we recognize, Alfa Romeo, who we recognize, and another team named Auto Union, they each sent three cars into the race to compete. So that looks a little different than how we see things today. And it had a really big showing. A ton of people came especially for 1936. It was wildly popular. But unfortunately, F1 didn't return to Hungary for another 50 years due to politics and World War II made a big impact, as you can imagine, on European motorsport. So fast forward to 1986, when Bernie Ecclestone worked his little tail off to have Hungary be the first location for a Formula One Grand Prix behind the Iron Curtain. If you don't know what the Iron Curtain is, go look it up. I'm not going to do a whole history lesson on, on it, but this was a really big deal. And so Bernie Ecclestone really wanted a race actually in the USSR at the time, which mm -hmm. is modern day Russia. But a Hungarian friend actually recommended that he race in Budapest instead. Shout out to that Hungarian friend. Uh, they wanted a street circuit similar to, you guessed it, the Circuit de Monaco. I feel like every time I'm doing these histories and Bernie Ecclestone's involved, he's like, I want it to be like Monaco. Everything's got to be yeah. like Monaco. <laughs> he had a favorite. Can you yes. guess which it was? Wonder which one it was. Um, but they wanted it to be a street circuit similar to Circuit de Monaco, but to be built in the Nepligat. So to be built in that same park, um, which at the time was Budapest's largest park. I don't know if it still is. It might still be. But the government decided instead to build a new circuit just outside outside the city near a major highway, which honestly I think is better for everybody. Um, I like street circuits. They're great, but I also believe in protecting the parks. And so I'm glad that they've decided to preserve the park. So the construction started on October 1st in 1985. It was built in eight months, which was less time. This is the fastest built track in than any other you know, circuit at the time for Formula One. The first race was held on March 24th in 1986. And it was in memory of, again, don't come for me, but Janos Drapal, who was the first Hungarian driver to ever win MotoGP races, which I thought was pretty neat. The circuit Ooh. is nicknamed after Bernie Ecclestone's favorite uh, track Monaco without the barriers. That's what it is nicknamed Monaco without the barriers because of how twisty and bumpy it is. And it's, uh, really difficult to overtake in the dry weather. So that's kind of a little bit how it came about. The first change in the tracks layout was carried out only three years later in 1989 when the chicane after the actual turn three was removed because they had to revert a stream that was supposed to like, that was like running through the area. There was like a spring that was running through the area and they had to remove uh. this chicane to make room for this spring. And then in 2003, the main straight was lengthened by roughly 200 meters. So for those of us who think in feet, that's 660 feet to, uh, it was moved from 200 meters to 908 meters. So lengthened significantly, uh, which in feet that's 2,979 guys, I got my calculator out. And the hairpin <laughs> at the end of the straight was also tightened in an attempt to facilitate more overtaking opportunities, which I think we're all grateful for because it's so Point. hard to overtake. Yes. And it tightened up what was turn 12. So these changes link actually lengthened naturally the overall circuit length because they lengthened that long straight. 
from 3.975 to 4.381 kilometers. For those of us that think in miles, I was really feeling my math statistician <laughs> self this week, you guys. <laughs> For those of us that think in miles, it's two point, roughly 2.5 miles to 2.7 miles. So add a little Good. bit of time. You're much kinder than I was. I never convert to miles. No matter how many <laughs> Americans watch my videos, I'm just like, you do the math converting. <laughs> I'm, just trying, I'm just trying to be loyal to my people, but also trying to know my audience. So, yeah. <laughs> so the Hungarian Grand Prix is not known to consistently be a wet one. Typically, rain doesn't fall the best around this time of year in Hungary. And this is usually when F1 comes to town. So the first wet race actually wasn't until the 2000s in 2006, which also happened to be Jensen Button's first ever Formula One win was in Hungary in 2006 in the wet weather <laughs> when he started from 14th place. Goodness so, gracious, Jensen Button. He's truly a thing in Canada. Yes, he's Mr. Come from the back. I'm telling you, he is Mr. <laughs> just driving oh. through the field. So, yeah, big fan of that. Budapest actually had some other notable wins and events for drivers. It was the first Grand Prix victory for Damon Hill in 1993, who, if you don't recognize him, go look him up. You'll see him in the Sky Sports broadcast every now and then. Fernando Alonso, who, if you don't know him, go look at the current driver lineup. (laughs) He had his first win there in 2003, which was actually also... 20 years ago. Isn't that crazy? It was Spain's first Grand Prix winner ever in history was when Fernando Alonso won in Hungary in 2003. And and not only that, he was the youngest driver at the time to take a victory at a Grand Prix. I don't think that's the record anymore, but at the time it was. Um, Some younger hotshot came along. Yeah, some guy. You might recognize him. I don't know. Some dude. I don't know. Some guy. Anyway. A decent um, driver nowadays, I hear. He's all right. He's Some say he's incredible. Um, oh. But the other driver who had his debut or his first ever win there, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher the name, but I'm going to do my best, is Heike Kovalainen in 2008. Did I do it right? Oh, you guys. I'm just bringing all my linguistic and all of my math skills to you guys here at Gravel Trap today. I love you so much. And um, he was also the 100th Grand Prix victor at that race, which Ooh. was pretty exciting. And then the one we all know and love, if you've been watching Formula One for the last three-ish years, Esteban Alcon won in 2021. He won his first ever Grand Prix also. His one and only so far. Yes, also in Hungary. And no, he did not break his first place trophy. I would like for that to be said. Or his after, seat. Or his seat at that time. He did break it this weekend. But it was oh. of no fault of his own. Um, so anyways. But another yeah. notable instance was in 1997 when Damon Hill, who we previously mentioned, won his first ever race in Hungary in 1993. But in 1997, he lost lost, the drivability of his Aero's car on the final lap, which costed him the win to our Canadian friend, Jacques Villeneuve, who I know how to say his name. Thanks to Christina. Thanks, girl. (laughs) 
Um, so yeah, but then to bring it back to some of the guys that we currently know in 2014, Lewis Hamilton came within six seconds of Daniel Ricardo's victory after starting from the pit lane, which is nuts. So Lewis Hamilton, you can't say he's not one of the, one of the greats, if not the greatest of all time. And speaking of Lewis Hamilton, Budapest was also where he got his first ever win with Mercedes. So Hungary is a really special place for a lot of drivers on and off the grid. Um, the only drivers to have ever clinched the drivers' championship in Hungary, which honestly, if you think about it, that's pretty early in the season. But mm-hmm. I know that the seasons Super didn't early. used to be as long as they are now, but still. Michael Schumacher clinched it in 2001, which we heard a little bit more about when we talked to Sean last week. If you guys have listened to that episode with Sean, you would know that those days were their Michael Schumacher great days where it was kind of boring to watch because he was winning everything. So not surprised that he clinched it. Yeah. And Nigel Mansell also clinched it in 1992 in Hungary. So anyways, yeah. It's said that Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen, and Fernando Alonso have been vocal about how much they love this track, which honestly, when you look at the stats and how Fernando has won and had such a great history there, and I think that Lewis... Did he set the record for most pole positions at one place? That's right. Was this weekend? This is nine. Yeah. Nine yes. or eight. Something like so that. So it's no surprise that Lewis and Fernando both love this track. But Max also has been vocal about saying how much he loves this track. Um, other drivers have expressed that it's not their favorite because they feel it's too slow, hot, and demanding. So that's the skinny on the Hungarian Grand Prix, the Hungarong Ring. I hope that you guys appreciated not having to bring out your phonetic <laughs> alphabet or your calculators today. I will do what I can oh. for you guys. Can I say my favorite thing about Hungary? Yes, girl. The artwork. Yeah. The artwork that Gorgeous. you get inspired by the city, by the Great Budapest Hotel. Like you get mm-hmm. so much just good, pretty stuff. To this day, my favorite screensaver set that I've ever used across all of my devices was last year from Alpha Tauri when they had the purple and pink Yuki and Pierre pulling the little suitcases like in front of the little hotel. Yeah. So gorgeous. Brought me so much joy. That is today's Grand Prix segment. I hope you learned a little bit more about Hungary so you can show it off to your friends. Well, for today's checkered flag segment, we are joined by the incredible producer Buck, which if any of you guys are interacting with us on social media, that's the guy you're talking to. He is doing a great job running all the social media channels, but he's going to bring us some headlines today. What is going on, Buck? Hey there. Thanks for having me back. Uh, Today's headlines deal largely with, I'd say, less talked about regulation changes. We've seen a lot of stuff in the news over every Grand Prix weekend, we see all these you know, trending stories. I like to look for the ones that aren't being talked about as often. For the listeners, I'll include links to the articles I'm referencing in the description of this episode below, so you can follow along. The first one I have for you is Fernando Alonso blasts the new Pirelli tires for Aston Martin and Red Bull losing sudden performance. So we talked about on the live stream today and uh, other places about the closing of the gap in in Hungary we didn't mention tires I don't think that was part of the discussion but Alonso is saying that these new tires are to blame for that so is is this both about the new tires and the sprint format well not the sprint format but that qualifying format that reduced 
Uh, yeah, they, were, I meant the they had eleven right. sets of tires. Yes, versus yes. thirteen. Yes. So yeah, he's saying that, uh, you know, he feels bad for the spectators not having to, the spectacle, but also they couldn't run as much to dial in the cars. Yeah. So is it the tires or the lack of tires? Like I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I think that he's trying to pad his argument by bringing Red Bull into it. I don't think that Red Bull is really struggling that much. I genuinely no. don't. Because I remember there was a radio message with Max this weekend where they asked him specifically, how are the tires feeling? And he said, the tires are great. He did not seem to be struggling with the tires. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that the tires are totally to blame. I think it's more so that the other teams are catching up. And bringing in developments that are catching the field. Mm -hmm. But honestly, these drivers are the ones that are driving on the tires. So who am I to say Fernando Alonso is wrong? I mean. <laughs> yeah. Like the thing with the Red Bull performance as well is that part of it is just Checo is not, not hitting his stride. He's been mm -hmm. having bad week after week after week. Next other thing is that they did bring an upgrade. They changed their side pods. They changed a handful of things on the car. And so you do have to leave some time to adjust and get used to that. And you were hearing Max on the radio during the free practice sessions, during qualifying, just talking about things that needed to be tweaked, changed, giving feedback. And that, that seemed to be what it was that, yep, we brought an upgrade and now we just need to settle into it. Mm -hmm. And yes, they brought new tires, a new construction. And again, I do think that it's just some teams are getting used to the new tires and adapting to them better than others. All right. So for our second story, there's been some information coming out about the 2026 regulations looking forward into the future. Uh, pretty drastic changes. Yeah. Uh, the top three that are being debated right now are the gearboxes will have six gears instead of eight. Cars will have to use 30 kilograms of fuel only to generate electric power. And the wheelbase will be shortened by 30 centimeters. This is reported by the Fastest Pit Stop uh, Twitter account. Um, Which is questionably reliable at times. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that. <laughs> She's like, let me just put this in here. <laughs> they are, I find them very hit and miss. They use Google Translate for a lot. <laughs> so dead. the the article they they got that from i translated also and the concern is that they're going to have to use basically the engine is going to be more of a generator for the electric drive system of the car than it is a locomotive tool to move the car so christian horner's worried about them having to lift and coast on straights just to generate electricity they need to keep the car going he, he's worried about that i feel like it's all an attempt to be more eco-friendly i think that that's at the heart of a lot of this and so i think that's fine and then they're doing what they say they wanted to do as far as the eco changes um i don't know if i was christian horner i wouldn't be too worried as long as adrian knew he's on my team i'm sure they'll figure something out <laughs> to make it incredible oh. so my big thing whenever you're hearing about a multitude of changes that are coming is that when you change a whole bunch of things concurrently, it can be difficult to assess what's working and what's not, what's having an impact and what's 
not. And when you already have a giant amount of engine regs changing and the arrow, everything is changing pretty much in 2026. You have new teams coming to the grid. You Mm -hmm. have just so much that's kind of shifting. That's the part that makes me nervous is I'm a huge fan of incremental small changes. In my mind, it would make a lot more sense instead of banking on all of these changes happening at once for 2026, plan a more gradual rollout for a bunch of them. Like that's, yeah. It's hard to yeah. tell if something's working without having an isolated variable. That's a good Come point. on. This is the stat episode. That was last week. Oh, <laughs> uh, we've been oh. so influenced by Sean. We have. All right. Well, our final story, F1 teams to discuss engine equalization move, fueled by concerns from French manufacturer Alpine that its Renault engine is not on par with its rivals. Now, apparently in the past, back in the V8 era in 2007, manufacturers had exploited those regulations, saying that they were making reliability changes, but really they were making performance increases. Uh, So there's a little bit of scandal involved in this whole thing. I feel a little bit like... Wah, wah. You get to choose the power unit that you use. And if you can't make the best one, then buy one from someone who can. You have that freedom and capability to do that. It's not a secret. You know, it's a little bit like, help me because I'm not as good as everybody else. Like, well, maybe help yourself a little bit first instead of trying to hold everybody else back. Now, if other people are putting things in their power units that they should not be putting, then I think that's a different conversation. But if you have a problem, change change your your car. Seriously. Like, seriously. I've never thought I'd agree (laughs) with Christian Horner when he was angry, but like... Because it's a design challenge, I'm, for the most part, very on board of like, yeah, you make the car you make, and that's what you have to drive. But because I kind of almost have the slightly opposite take, where because you can buy engines from other people, it's not fully a part of the design challenge aspect. So to me, the design constructor aspect entirely is the body of that car, the things that you are not allowed to get from other teams. Mm -hmm. And I don't particularly mind if they choose to equalize or just have slightly different what is designed and what's to have slightly different standards for those parts that you are allowed to share between teams. Mm -hmm. I'm open to that being not entirely. You have to do it yourself. That was like, that was a, that was a talk on capitalism. That's what that was a talk on. That wasn't even a talk on. That wasn't even about Formula One. That was a conversation on capitalism. Formula One all is capitalism. You can't talk about Formula One without capitalism. That'll be the name of the, uh, this week's episode is welcome to our TED talk. Starving for (laughs) capitalism and hungry. (laughs) Well, those are all the headlines I have for you. Thank you so much for your uh, opinions and insights and uh, outlooks on these topics. Yeah, thanks well, for joining us, welcome. Buck. It's always so fun to see <laughs> what we're going to agree on and what we're going to disagree on. It's so much fun. It surprises me every time. Uh, if you haven't, if you weren't there for our live stream where we talked about the actual race, you can head over to YouTube to both see 
and hear that. You don't see our faces frequently on this show. You absolutely should. They're good ones. And we'll be back here next week. Yes, you can see us on Monday around 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern. We'll go live on YouTube and get everyone's thoughts on Spa, a potentially very wet and rainy spa. The beauty of the live stream is that you get basically an unedited episode of Gravel Trap. (laughs) It's everything we normally cut out. (laughs) It is what it is. You can choose to stay. You can choose to... No, you will stay. (laughs) I'm not giving you guys a choice anymore. You'll love it. It's amazing. That's it, that's it. (laughs) Yo, my baby lollipop, tell you why.